From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Well, welcome to EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Uh, Father Brian Milady is here. We're going to be emptying out the mailbag today. Um, so if you'd like to be part of a future mailbag program, just send us an email. That email address again is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program, and our host, as he is every Thursday, is Father Brian Milady. And before we dip into the mailbag, Father, you wanted to talk a little bit about envy. Yes, since we're in... Lent and many people are going to confession. Uh, I wanted to talk about some of the capital sins. And last week I talked about uh, one. I want to talk about envy this week. Envy is called the green eyed monster. And the reason partially is because you look at everything someone else does through a kind of colored lens. And no matter how good they are or what good they do, you always misinterpret it to be something that has low motives or whatever. Um, the problem is, you see, that according to our gospel and, and really natural law ethics, we should rejoice in the good of another human being. But in this case, we find the good of another human being to be an occasion of evil for us. Now, of course, there are levels of envy. There are small levels where you don't do anything particularly alarming to try to rob the other person of their reputation. But then there are large levels of envy, and this can even lead to murder. But I think its usual expression is in like a corporation, whereas one person tries to get rid of another from a particular corporate position. Or, uh, unfortunately, in the family, where even how much money you inherit in the will can be a occasion of envy. It's interesting that to show what the nature of envy is, Dante in the Divine Comedy and Purgatory has the various seven capital sins. And remember, they're called capital not because they're always mortal. Envy isn't always a mortal sin but because they give rise to other sins. And in Envy's case, the punishment for Envy, the invidious, is for a person to sit in sackcloth and ashes, begging the prayers of the saints, and have their eyes sewn shut. And of course, this was a common practice in the Middle Ages for falcons, birds. So Dante used this image because to look upon the good of another was an occasion of evil for the envious. Whereas, as a matter of fact, it should be an occasion of good for us. So during this Lent, we need, uh, as we are doing, to look deeply into our souls to examine our consciences about our own egotism. And an especially powerful place where egotism takes place is in the jealousy or envy of the good of another, which should cause us joy and instead causes us sorrow. And the other 
interesting thing about envy is it can be all-consuming. So everything you do, you think about the person you dislike or you hate. And uh, it's a very, very consuming um, sin. And we don't want to be consumed by things like that. We want to be consumed by good things, not this phony evil. So I would recommend during Lent that we think about this too and how it affects our inner life. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Uh, So we won't be taking your phone calls today. We've got an email here from Peter who says, should there be a separation of church and state? Does the church believe they should be together? There should be a separation between the two. The Lord himself gave reference to this, was rendered to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. The separation, however, isn't inimical. It's a question of two societies which should remain at peace with each other because there's nothing in the church that should cause a state, which is based on the natural law at least, to look upon the church as an enemy of any kind. Now, in the 17th century, because of Protestantism, the Protestants, as you know, refused to recognize the papacy. But they did recognize that there was authority from God. So they tended to invest this authority in the state. That's why we have kings who are also heads of churches and things like that. And this was not just true in Protestantism. It began to take over in Catholicism. So that I believe it was in 1770, the Catholic powers decided in Europe that they could dispense with the papacy because it was useless and anachronistic. And that would be Spain, France, and Austria-Hungary. And of course, it wasn't shortly thereafter that they all lost their heads in the French Revolution. And one wonders if it was a punishment for God for trying to usurp the authority of the church. But, you know, the emperor of the Austrian Empire, at one point along the line, Joseph II, he was called the Sacristan Emperor because he even made it a, a, a law of the civil order, how many candles you would have on the altar during mass. Now, this is an unjust interference by the civil order. In our business, Vatican I, strangely enough, has the reputation for being a council which sought to return to this union of throne and altar that was practiced by these Catholic sovereigns, where the state and the church were looked upon at one. In fact, Vatican I was the first council to which the civil authorities were not even invited. And the infallibility of the Pope was an attempt to demonstrate that authority in the church was very different from authority in the state and that uh, we were not in any sense people who thought the throne and altar should be united as did the Protestants. Instead for us, the state was the state, the church was the church. Now of course, because of the influence of Protestantism and the enlightenment about this, Many Catholic ecclesiastics and theologians felt 
that the church should still have a lot to say about what went on in the state. And, and that's, it's a way of looking at things. But Vatican II was very explicit about the uh, nature of conscience when it came to both the church and the state. And they really very much held for the complete distinction between the two. There is a distinction between the two, but they're not, again, so so distinct that the church can practice moral things and the state can practice immorality and they can both be seen to be at peace with each other. The state should govern itself according to natural law. And the church always reserves the right, if it doesn't, to point that out as far as churches are concerned. Uh, today, of course, we have very little influence on what happens in the state, but it would be good if we could have a little more because obviously our states are dissolving, even ones that are run by uh, so-called Catholics to be some poles of corruption and evil. So we need to have some ability at least to point out People should uh, rethink this and perhaps change and convert. But in, in general, the state's uh, influence is basically on the goods of this world, a peace and justice in society, whereas the church's influence is on going to heaven in the final kingdom, the final society which is perfect and only occurs really after we die. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday. We're not going to be taking your phone calls today. If you'd like to be part of a future mailbag program, simply send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's open line, all one word, at EWTN.com. Or if you'd like to leave a message on our listener comment line that we might use in a future program, simply call our regular number, 833-288-EWTN, and uh, call that after 5 p.m. Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, or any time on the weekend, and we will get that message into the hopper for a future program. It's EWTN's Open Line, Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Got a great new children's book from Anthony DiStefano at EWTN's Religious Catalog. And even though they're children's books, uh, I, as an adult, glean a lot from these books that Anthony puts together. This one is Joseph's Donkey. It's um, a heartwarming tale of a noble donkey purchased by St. Joseph shortly before his marriage to the Blessed Virgin Mary. The trusted creature helps Joseph in his carpentry business, but he also plays a key role in all the major events recorded in the infancy narratives of the Gospels. He carries Mary to Bethlehem, where she gives birth to Jesus. He takes the Holy Family to Egypt, 
To escape the evil King Herod, he shuttles the family to Jerusalem, where the 12-year-old Jesus gets lost in the temple and is then found again. Anthony Stefano's rich and beautifully illustrated book will be a source of stirring entertainment for children who will fall in love with the strong, dignified, humble, and hardworking donkey. Joseph's donkey will also introduce children to the mysterious and wonderful character of St. Joseph himself. For in the coming to know and cherish the donkey, children will come to appreciate and grow close to Jesus' foster father as well. It's available now at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com, where they're offering free standard shipping on online orders of $75 or more. That's standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday, so we're not taking your calls today. Beverly writes in, during the Last Supper, was the bread and wine his body, blood, soul, and divinity? Well, after he changed it by the words of institution, yes. It was his body, blood, soul, and divinity. Exactly. And that's why Christ says, do this in memory of me. And he does this to associate the apostles with the passion after they receive the Eucharist. Because, you know, it's interesting that Protestant accounts of the passion generally begin with the garden. But Catholic accounts begin with the Holy Eucharist institution. And the reason is because we believe the Mass is connected to the sacrifice of Christ. Uh, Scott Hahn has that nice book, The Fourth Cup where he shows the absolute connection between the Last Supper and Christ's last drinking when he says it's finished on the cross. And when he said when he was a Protestant, he couldn't figure out what was finished. (laughs) And he asked all kinds of professors and all that. None of them could tell them. And the reason is because they did not have the tradition of the Passover meal which is a very peculiar one and ends unfinished with the association with the crucifixion, especially in the drinking of the fourth cup. Uh, Lee would like to know, what's the difference between a blessed and a saint? Well, the difference is that when we canonize someone, we say by an infallible act, a quasi-infallible act, that we know they're in heaven. A blessed is someone who's enabled to have um, what we call it a cult. It's not a cult in the California sense. We mean it has a, you can pray to, to this person to help you and things like that. But we're not absolutely certain yet because they have passed all the tests by a quasi-infallible act that the person is in actually in heaven. Uh, again, we're not taking your phone calls today. It's a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Uh, we've got an email from Brett, and he says, How can we trust that the church leaders are doing what they are meant to be doing now? Well, you can trust in the fact that the office is oriented to that. It hasn't changed at all. Just because there are some people in the office that are not worthy uh, doesn't mean that it changes the office one iota. Now, even in the past, you know, there have been very, well, difficult and strange ecclesiastics. In fact, 
there was a cardinal who uh, was one of the chief finance ministers of France under Louis the Sixteenth. He wasn't the last one before the revolution, but I think he was second to last. And when he lost his position, he went back to his diocese, but he sent his red hat back to Rome. He's the only person that's ever done that, sent the cardinal's hat back to Rome. And then he became a, a priest of the revolution where he didn't recognize Rome or Roman allegiance or anything like that. And who knows what he did when he said mass. And there's a tradition that he either poisoned himself or died of starvation in prison during the revolution. Now that's an example of an ecclesiastic that, well, he really shouldn't have been ecclesiastic. And even the famous Talleyrand who was minister under every single French government. He always managed to change his spots. The famous Talleyrand only said mass once, and that was at his ordination, period. And yet, after persecuting the church, giving all the money away to support the French educational system, being a secular minister for many, many years, when he died, he insisted on being anointed as a bishop. <laughs> he said, I am still a bishop, you know, so, it, it, this isn't the first time this has happened in history. Of course, we know so much about it now because of the 24-hour news cycle. Whereas before, they didn't really, well, they didn't have access to all those things. But we can trust in the fact that our Lord will not leave and desert his church. Um, Mike has a uh, question here. He says, how can I explain to a Protestant friend that priests, like the apostles, have the authority to forgive sins? Well, you have to believe in the words of Christ, where when he rose from the dead, you remember, he appeared to the apostles in the upper room and said, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven them and whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. And the epistles and the Acts of the Apostles are very clear about the fact that the Apostles did appoint certain successors that had the same powers up to a point. Certainly they had this power, but I mean they had the same powers up to a point that, that they had. If you don't believe that, then it's very hard to defend that. After all, it is an invisible power, and it does involve the conscience. Uh, and Bill writes in with another papal question. How can I respond to a Protestant claim that Jesus is the rock and is Peter's compass? Well, because Christ said the words to Peter. <laughs> he didn't say them to himself. <laughs> On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Those words were spoken to Peter. Jesus didn't speak them to himself. I have no idea what they mean by compass, and I have no idea what you're referring to when you talk about Protestants. Protestants do a lot of things because they're, they, they themselves have had uh, new foundings of new churches as sects. There are, what, two or 3,000 Protestant sects? And they all hold different things. They're all fighting with each other in a certain way. Uh, I don't really know what source of that text is. 
But I will tell you that the words were spoken to Peter, not to Christ. Yeah, well, sometimes we make things more complicated than they need to be, don't we? Well, I mean, the word Peter means rock. (laughs) (laughs) He names him from Simon. Uh, Naomi wants to know if our loved ones in purgatory can hear our petitions. Uh, Yes, of course. We're connected with all the people um, who've gone before us in heaven or in purgatory. Oh, we're all part of the church, and we all have an influence over each other. And that's why it's a holy and wholesome thing for us to pray for the dead, because they need us to help them along the way. And also, um, because of this union in Christ, we're all in contact with each other. It may not be so evident, because it's an invisible contact, but it's there. I don't know if you've ever if you have experienced this, but... I remember I had a sister friend who was quite uh, interested in correcting me constantly. (laughs) And after she died, she was a good person. After she died, anytime somebody slapped my hands or I get some correction, I'd say, all right, I heard that. You're really running things from up there too, huh? So... Well, somebody's got to get you uh, line. That's exactly right. And, uh, <laughs> so, um, anyway, the, yes, we are definitely in touch with each other. Um, again, a special mailbag edition of Open Line Thursday, not taking your phone calls today. Um, this is a good question from Joel. He says, if you misspeak or forget words to your act of contrition, is your absolution still valid? Well, yeah, well, the act of contrition is a, as you know, there's several forms of them in the new liturgy, even up to Lord Jesus have mercy on me, a sinner, which I must admit I find a little minimalistic. <laughs> but uh, no, the act of contrition, there's nothing canonical about it, it but it was written to try to cover all the bases regarding your intention, to express your intention, to confess all of your sins and to have your sins forgiven. And so if you miss a few words, it's not a big deal now. What if you don't complete your penance that was assigned to you by Father? Well, as long as you intended to, that's the, that's the important thing. Uh, you can actually you can substitute another penance if you can't remember your penance. So um, it, it's, again, more a symbol than a, um, something to take too seriously. You know, I think we lose sight. Yeah, I think we lose sight sometimes that uh, you know, as long as we're not trying to play games with our Lord, He's abundantly aware of our frailties, right? <laughs> right, absolutely. And the the penance is a just a sign that you want to make satisfaction. So if you do want to make satisfaction, even if you forget your penance, um, just. Uh, Either make give one to yourself, or the next time you go to confession, say you forgot your penance, and ask the priest if he'll assign it to you. Or sometimes your penance can be very difficult and possible. I've known priests today who assign whole chapters of theology books to people as a penance for just their normal confession. I mean, I frankly find that strange. <laughs> 
Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday, so we're not taking your phone calls today, but if you'd like to be part of a future mailbag edition of Open Line, simply send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. It's a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line, Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Right back to the mailbag we go. Jim writes in, could you help me articulate the difference between the Father and the Holy Spirit? Uh, yes, the Father is unoriginated. Um, and he also is the source. The Son proceeds from him alone. That's why we call him the Son and the Father. The Holy Spirit is originated, and he proceeds from both the Father and the Son. That's the difference. The Holy Spirit does not originate anything, but from then on, the Trinity uh, is the origin of the world that's created as it reflects the Trinity. But the primary characteristic of the Father is that he's unoriginated. Uh, Linda writes in, I I hadn't really considered this before, and I have not seen the movie The Song of Bernadette. Shame shame on me. Um, Linda says, does Mary pray the rosary to herself as portrayed in The Song of Bernadette? I have no idea. I've seen that movie 10,000 times, and I wasn't aware she prayed to herself. She just said the rosary. I assume she prayed to the Lord. She invited Bernadette to do the same thing. Uh, after all, that's who we're praying to in the rosary. And by the way, I highly recommend the song of Bernadette to you. I imitate the Mother Superior all the time in my conferences. So, <laughs> well, I'll have to but, put that uh, on, no, my, I, on my viewing I, list. I didn't get uh, anything from that movie like that. They they pray to the Lord. That's the, you get pray the rosary too, not to Mary or to anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, Daniel says, how do we argue that we have free will instead of just psychological conditioning? Oh, well, for one thing, to be conditioned, people have to train you. And they have to train you by basically getting you to lose your rationality. And there are all kinds of exercises where they practice manipulation over your passions to get them to react in a certain way, and it doesn't allow you to totally express your freedom. But for anybody, everything we do all day, uh, you know, when I choose the breakfast cereal instead of eggs, that's a sign of free will. And it's not a condition unless someone else, by doing violence to your nature, um, to the manipulation of your passions, basically presents a conflict within them so that you have a tendency and rather difficult tendency to do one thing instead of another 
which free will wouldn't allow you to do. That that you should decide for yourself. And uh, kind of a follow follow up to that. Um, Bryant has a predestination question. He says the Council of Trent says that humans cooperate with grace. But the Catechism says that man's cooperation with grace is itself a work of grace. Where does man's own action enter into things? Okay, you have to look on it in a kind of linear fashion. So operating grace, which is the original grace, which none of us can merit on our own, though we can prepare our free will to receive it, and that's, of course, a work of grace, too. But operating grace is where God moves us and we allow ourselves to be moved. Then, in light of this divine movement, in cooperating grace, each individual soul moves their own powers according to what their particular position is in the world to uh, um, implement the grace which is originally given with God. And because this is a supernatural condition, now you have to be careful about the use of the word grace, and there's a distinction with this. The grace which prepares us and the grace which supports us is actual grace, not sanctifying grace. It's God inspiring us and supporting us in a good intention. Once we do that, then in merit, each of us receives heaven according to how much we've loved God. That's the primary principle of merit. That's reflected in the Lord's famous comment, in my house there are many mansions. So um, you could use a rather childish way of expressing it, um, the way the sisters used to tell us in grammar school is that everybody's glass is full, but some glasses are bigger than others. And that's determined, again, not by how much you've suffered or any of those things, but by how much you've loved. Um, I know, I've, I, I know of, of a couple of different families, where uh, large families, where at dinner time everybody gets a small portion of wine with their meal. And Mindy writes in wanting to know if it's okay for underage practicing Catholics to drink in moderation. Well, yes, if that's the culture. <laughs> then believe me, in Italy, there is no underage. <laughs> I mean, you know, they sit the baby on their lap and they have the glass of wine and they stick their finger in the glass of wine and put it in the baby's mouth to suckle it. <laughs> you know, there is no underage. There are certain cultures in which it's common to drink alcoholic beverages like Germany with beer and Italy and Spain and Greece with wine or France. And part of the reason for that is that the water supplies were often contaminated. And so this was the only real drink or ale, for example, that was, that was open to them. So, uh, yes, it's permitted to have a glass of wine with your meal. In fact, uh, even if you're underage, uh, if your parents consent, and especially if your culture uh, permits that. Uh, I noticed when I lived in Italy that a lot of the Spaniards 
they drank, of course, they all drink wine and they drank it for lunch, but they diluted. They'd pour half the, uh, half of it would be water because they knew they had to work partially the rest of the day. You know, uh, my wife, Johnette, had uh, tells a story of having dinner at a, a large Catholic family's home and and uh, all of the children were given, as I said, a small portion of wine with dinner. And uh, one, uh, one of the eight, an eight-year-old daughter uh, in the middle of the meal uh, held up her glass and looked at her father and said, I'll have some more. And her father said, no, you won't. <laughs> so... Well, I mean, a lot of this is cultural. I remember when I lived in Europe, I was in charge of the sisters in the kitchen. And the only thing they ever asked me for, and if I didn't bring it, I got a call, was once a month I was to provide one bottle of cognac for medicinal purposes. (laughs) (laughs) Again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Uh, Nathan wants to know, Father Brian, what your views are on the theory of atonement. My views? Well, my views are the same as the church's. Uh, Atonement has a twofold um, part, two parts to it. The first is negative and the second is positive. The negative part is that our Lord has to suffer some punishment for the original sin and lovingly obey in our place in the face of that punishment. It would not be fitting for him to accept moral punishments because that would militate against his loving obedience. So he suffers from suffering and death. That's the negative part. It's necessary to write the divine justice. But the positive part is that because we lost grace when we committed the sin, uh, the sending of the Holy Spirit back into our souls of sanctifying grace is also a part of the atonement, which, of course, the Lord does eventually on uh, Pentecost. So the atonement involves both, and both have to be affirmed. Um, you know, it's the Lenten season, and we oftentimes get uh, listeners that we don't normally get during uh, the rest of the of the ordinary time season. So some of the questions that come in are a little more basic than others, but no less valid for these individuals. Mason wants to know, is it a mortal sin or a venial sin to miss Mass intentionally? It's a mortal sin to miss Mass intentionally. And the reason is because it's the sacrament of our salvation. Uh, It's where we participate in the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, and where we enter in, and the traditional way of putting this is become present at Calvary. Those of us who weren't there in the bloody sacrifice, we become present through the unbloody sacrifice. We, We need the grace to support us in Christian life. And if we say we love God and refuse to go to his house, there's something wrong with that. So it's also a matter of divine justice because it fulfills the commandment in the third commandment, keep holy the Sabbath. So on all those levels, it's a mortal sin to miss Mass on Sunday or Holy Day through your own fault. 
Uh, Whitney writes in, and I would I would probably have some problem with the premise of her question, but she asks, "What's the biblical basis for the Catholic stance on birth control?" Biblical basis? Uh, you mean there's is birth control mentioned in the Bible? Well, of course it's not, because they didn't have any. <laughs> uh, the connection, however, between the, uh, the actual spousal union and life is quite evident, even from the book of Genesis, because Christ, the Lord says, increase and multiply, subdue and dominate the earth. And the means by which that is done is by sexual act. So to break the sexual act and give it another purpose would be to do violence to it. And not only that, but birth control never entered anyone's mind until the French Revolution and Malthusianism with Dr. Malthus, and that would be in 1800. So for 1800 years, the church in no sense ever mentioned anything like birth control. And uh, so uh, abortion is clear in the early church sources, uh, fathers of the church, where it's specifically named. So I would say that um, there's a long tradition behind it whose roots are found in the connection between marriage and childbearing because the domination of the earth is basically our um, ability to be a steward of the earth and look upon it as a means by which we go to heaven. What about this notion that uh, any particular doctrine can only be valid if it is explicitly mentioned in Scripture? Well, of course, that's what the Protestants think. But in Scripture, they don't mention that. (laughs) Scripture itself doesn't say that. In fact, the whole manner of Scripture is uh, many of the Protestants look at the Bible as King James Version annotated, dropped out of heaven. Uh, For one thing, the only way we know what books are in the Bible or aren't is because of the tradition of the church. And the only reason we know that some are not canonical, and I know there's an argument about the Apocrypha, but I mean things like the Gospel according to Thomas and the Gospel according to James, is because what came first was the preaching of the apostles. And the Christian church did not think that what was taught in that book corresponded to the preaching of the apostles, and therefore it couldn't possibly be inspired. Uh, Jim writes in, what is the importance of relics and why do Catholics revere them? Oh, relics, huh? Well, I'll tell you. Uh, I was in California when the relic of St. Therese came through. I don't know if any of you remember that, but there were thousands and thousands and thousands of people that went to view, and it was in a casket, really. You couldn't see it but the relics of St. Therese. And I remember in one particular city in California, the mayor was very perturbed because there were so many people. He had to depute sections of the police department to you know, do crowd control and things. 
And so he said to one of the sergeants who was a Hispanic woman, Bones, you want us to guard Bones? (laughs) And she said, Your Honor, one more word, and I'm having you up in charges of religious discrimination. She said, for some of us, those bones mean a great deal. And we, we guard Chinese New Year. We guard, you can't do that for our relics. And the fact that relics are very important is seen in the famous instance of what happened to Thomas Beckett. You know, when Henry VIII declared his independence from Rome, he destroyed the tomb, which was the richest practically in Christendom, I think it had the largest pearl and it disappeared in Canterbury Cathedral. But he had the body dug up. He had a trial over the dead body, pronounced him a a traitor, and then destroyed his bones. So no one could come to uh, touch them or view them or whatever. Now, interestingly enough, when Thomas Becker was canonized a saint, they sent some of the parts of his body around Europe. So they weren't in England. And they recently discovered, I think, one of his arms or legs in Czechoslovakia. So they returned it to England. And this time, both the Catholics and the Anglicans were there to do veneration to Thomas Becker. But the bones are very important because, and anything touching to the saint, because we have a very fleshy religion. Uh, we're not people who think we're, we're angelic. And so the fleshly religion means that having physical contact with even the body of the saint or something that's been touched to his body will help us very much in our own devotion. Be sure to check out the Catholic Cafe with Deacon Jeff Drzemski. He talks with men about how to share experiences, strengthen their faith, and be better husbands and fathers. That's the Catholic Cafe, Sunday morning, 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Uh, Courtney says she has a friend that says the church is anyone and everyone who believes in Christ. Is this true, or is there more to it? Well, I know there's more to it than that. A person who is a member of the Catholic, the church, the church, remember in Vatican II, even in their ecumenical document, they call the Orthodox churches, but they call the Protestants ecclesial communities. And they did that for a reason, because they wanted to distinguish it from the church as such. There's many things you have to believe to be a member of the church and unity of sacraments, unity of authority, and those kinds of things. And um, so you can't just say because a person believes in Christ. For one thing, we all believe different things about Christ. They can't all be true. We're back to the dictatorship of relativism. My Christ, found in the church, was seven sacraments. I have a friend who's a very, very good man, very good Protestant, but he has no no patience with sacraments. In fact, the baptism he's just performing when the children are like 10 years old because they don't look on the touching of the water 
in the same way we do. So somebody has to be right. I may be wrong. Catholic Church may be wrong. But somebody has to be right. Either there are seven sacraments or two or none. And they can't all be right. So I think that uh, the, the uh, affirmation of faith in unity of authority and also in um, unity of sacraments and worship and also in unity of doctrine, all those things have to be affirmed to truly be a member in full standing of the church. You remember in Vatican II, they had a kind of gradation of being members of the church. And they said some people are members of the church in potency, but not in act. Everybody's somehow connected to the church. The only people who aren't would be the people who can never become connected to the church. And that would be the damned in hell. All the others are either in potency, which is very remote and removed, or potency, which is very close, or members themselves. So um, that would be the, the way. Uh, Thomas would like to know, what does the church, church teach about dreams? Can they be sinful? Um, frankly, my understanding of dreams is the only time a dream can be sinful is if you've done something before you went to sleep to cause you to think about something sinful or even to do a sinful act. But other than that, as you know, dreams are done without consciousness and therefore they're done without will. However, if you've done something before you went to bed by your will to sort of rev yourself up to a certain condition, that does endure while you're at sleep. So this is a famous example of what's called the voluntary cause, where you don't intend the effect, but you intend the cause. It's like a person who gets drunk and then drives. They don't intend to kill someone, but they've gotten themselves in a condition where it very could well likely happen. So it's a problem today, very much with internet pornography, because you can get yourself so revved up and then you go to bed, well, that stuff still remains with you uh, for the time you're sleeping that night. And if it gives rise to a sinful deed, then it wouldn't be as sinful if it was if a person set out to do it uh, by premeditation. But still, it, it could be a sin. Again, a very special mailbag edition of Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. Brenda writes in, If a child is baptized in the Catholic Church but never receives Holy Communion or Confirmation, then later marries outside the Church, is this marriage valid? Oh. Baptism puts in you the so-called character, the indelible mark. That never changes. You're always a Catholic. And whether you go to communion or confirmation, you're bound to the Catholic form of marriage as a result. So if you participate in a marriage outside the church that's not of the Catholic form, then that's not a valid marriage. Dennis asks, please explain how we can refer to the early saints as saints before the formal process was instituted. When was the process instituted, and why or how did the archangels get the designation of saint? Many thanks from Dennis. Okay. 
Well, saint just means your holy person. Obviously, the archangels that were uh, loyal to God are holy people. So we don't need a canonization process. And in the early church, they hadn't developed all these things in a such canonical and legal sense. After all, the Code of Canon Law, in its initial forms, which weren't too too well done, but they came along in the Middle Ages. So that would be pretty much when the canonization process began. And the first canonized saint with a process was Thomas Beckett. And then um, in the Dominican order, and these are people, remember, before there were local saints, uh, that the people of that particular church recognized as holy. But with Thomas Becket, the Pope extended this saint to the universal church, and they didn't have any say about it. Some of them were rather perturbed about that. And then it was followed by, in the Dominican order, Peter Martyr, and in the Franciscan order, I believe it was St. Anthony, because there were popular devotions to them throughout Europe. And so the cult uh, the saints, that particular saint, was extended not just to the local church, but to the universal church. And that, that's how the process began to be developed. So it would have been around uh, St. Thomas Becket was murdered in 1170. It would be around that time that they developed the began to develop what we know today as canonization. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Um, and Angela wants well, actually, Angela can wait till the next mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Malady, our producer, Michael McCall, I'm Jack Williams. Again, if you'd like to be part of a future mailbag edition of Open Line, just send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. Until we get together next time, God bless. God bless.